Okay, so, uh, hey Ted, glad to have you. Ted Canfield in Houston, Texas. Glad you're here with us. Um, so we're doing Psalms on Sunday, all 150 of them. And uh, I thought that to be a daunting proposition, so I sent you some notes. But uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna be heavy in the notes. There were a few things that I wanted you to see. Most of the time, when we open up a Bible book, you you start by saying, "Let me let me figure out some background in the book. Who wrote it? When was it written? What was the historical context that was going on? What was the theological context that was going on at the time?" Well, the problem with that is that Psalms is a collection. Uh, it's, it's called the Hebrew, Hebrew hymn book. And um, I want to I wanna read what I, I wrote um, uh, to you guys, because some of you might not have gotten the email. Elmer Towns, in his book, Praying the Psalms, he said, what are the Psalms? The Psalms were written as prayers, for the Hebrew people to sing. Now, stop there for a second. Why, why would they have material like this that they would want to convert to songs? They were largely illiterate. They, they didn't, the, the, all the priests could read and uh, most of the, the boys had some exposure to Hebrew school through Torah school, but but largely you have a population that's illiterate. And just like our children in vacation Bible school and their scripture songs, when they would sing their prayers, sing their poetry, sing their stories, they would commit them to memory. And so he says, what are the Psalms? Psalms were written as prayers for the Hebrew people to sing. The song that was their deep feeling about God, a prayer to God. In Bible times, if you passed a field, you might have heard the workers singing one of the Psalms, or you might hear a family singing a Psalm as they relaxed in the evening sitting under a tree. This is my statement. The Psalms are both a mirror and a map. They are a mirror in that they reveal our own hypocrisy and sin they are a map in that they help us to know what to do with it. So a psalm is both a mirror and a map. So I ask you a couple of questions. What are the cultural, oh, let me back up. While yes, we're looking at all the psalms, I reminded myself that that's not our primary purpose. Our primary purpose is that we are dealing with Psalms as a part of the wisdom literature, the wisdom books in the Bible. And more than that, how the Psalms teach us how to pray. Now that's what excited me the most. And I'll, I'll, I'll bury the lead and say, uh, you may find it helpful as I have to simply read a Psalm out loud in your own quiet time with God and allow that to be your prayer. When you have no words for adoration or confession or thanksgiving or supplication, 
And that's kind of the, the outline that I'm going to follow. When, when we have no words, sometimes we let the scripture be our words. And that's why they were written. They were written to give voice <coughs> to people who, who were hurt so deeply, who were overjoyed so deeply, who were so angry. The, the Psalms give them voice. And it's a, it's, it's a really, really cool thing. What does the culture say about prayer? Uh, for you who are online, maybe you haven't uh, seen our um, our Sunday morning. Uh, we're, we're calling the series Ancient Truth, Modern Lies. So what is the, the lie the culture is telling us about prayer that we're going to answer with Scripture? Waste of time. So, like trying to rub a bottle and get a genie to come out. God doesn't hear me. Okay. If they believe in God at all. Right. Good thoughts, man. Lifting up good thoughts. Can you online hear everything people are saying? Okay, I'll repeat it. Um, uh, what does the culture say about prayer? What are the lies they tell? It's like uh, expecting a genie to come out of the bottle. It's just a, a waste of time. It's good thoughts. It's uh, positive energy, sending good vibes. What else? A lot of people call them manifestations that they do themselves. Right. Uh, oddly enough, uh, as I was studying, I found quite a few secular prayers. And one of the common themes seems to be that the object of the prayer or the, the recipient of the prayer is what seems to be most different. People find prayer as meditation helpful. People that go to the beach find praying to the ocean helpful. Uh, praying to a tree, uh, praying to a dead relative. Um, there, there are all kinds of expressions that I felt a little bad because the rational side of me kicks in and then I went, well, I, I have trouble feeling like the ocean can answer my prayer. And I guess if it makes me feel better, then it's got value, but it's not value as prayer. It's, it's value as counting to 10 when you're angry or trying to envision a happy place. It's prayer is that I'm getting in touch with the God of the universe, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, the provider, the one who will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's who I talk to. And I just kind of feel sad at the thought that uh, my whole goal in prayer is to make me feel better. And so the world is all too happy to tell us about prayer. And fortunately, the Psalms is going to help us as well. Let me give you the stuff that I won't do on Sunday because that's kind of what we do. Um, the uh, Psalms came from all across Israel's history. So like there's a Psalm that's written by Moses and maybe some anonymous Psalms that, that are even before that. Um, most of the Psalms are attributed to David, 
73 of them, we believe, uh, that he wrote. Um, other authors, uh, uh, Asaph, the sons of Korah, uh, Moses, Solomon, um, and, and, and a bunch of them are anonymous, including Psalm 1. Um, we just don't know. We don't know when they were written. We don't know why they were written. Now, most of the Psalms have an inscription that tells us who wrote it, and in a lot of cases, why they wrote it, or what were the circumstances uh, surrounding the writing of that Psalm. I also feel like God is, uh, allows us some sanctified imagination when we read a Psalm and we go, I'm trying to imagine what the writer of that Psalm was going through. Uh, and, and we find that sometimes I believe it's not indicated what the Psalm was about because God wants us to put ourselves in the place of the writer because most of these, these are poems or songs that are directed to God. So they're, they're either talking to God or talking about God. And, and so there's very little narrative like we would find in, uh, say, Numbers or First uh, and Second Samuel. There, there's very little storytelling. It's almost all songs or poetry. And again, it was, it was almost exclusively put to music. And... Um, and when there is an occasion or a, a, a situation that's identified, it would be a familiar situation that, again, allows the reader to say, I've been through that as well. And so it's, uh, uh, I think that, like a whole lot of books, not enough credit goes to the editor. Whoever it was that assembled all of these psalms in, in the Hebrew, um, you, you'll, you'll hear it referred to as the Hebrew Psalter, P-S-A-L-T-E-R. And that's just another word for a hymn book. And so this was the Hebrew hymn book. It came together relatively early. And, um, and David, uh, of course, is known for writing uh, a number of them. There's some themes that if you look at the Psalms as a collection, you're going to see these themes running throughout the book. Uh, monotheism, there is one God. Um, uh, creation and fall. God is recognized as creator. Uh, it is acknowledged that man has uh, fallen. Um, the covenant relationship that we can have with God, that there is a, uh, a, um, a relationship that can be established through what he has done and through our response to what he has done. Um, we learned a word a couple of weeks ago, eschatology, uh, the study of last things, how God will bring everything to a close. There are a surprising number of statements and songs that speak of the last days uh, within the Psalms. And um, like I said, the editor doesn't get enough credit. There are lots of types of psalms. Uh, um, you're probably aware or, or something in you sort of alerts you to the lament psalms. Lament being 
uh, complaint or or expressing sadness about something. Uh, the book of Lamentations is Jeremiah's lament. And so we, we have a bunch of those, but we also have hymns of praise and we have hymns of confession, hymns of thanksgiving, uh, hymns that celebrate uh, God's word, God's law. Uh, royal Psalms, which talk about the monarchy of David, but also that of the coming king. Um, historical Psalms, they take history and turn it into poetry. Prophetic uh, songs. And then there are groups of Psalms within the Psalms. So the last five songs are called the Hallel songs. They are songs of praise. Um, the songs that celebrate the Torah, uh, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Um, 119 is the longest psalm in uh, the Psalter. And in Psalm 119, it is an acrostic psalm or an alphabet psalm where each eight stanzas begin with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet that is in sequence. And most of your Bibles are kind enough to break those stanzas apart and give you the Hebrew letter over the stanza. So it's just interesting that if you look at Psalm 119, one through eight, it says Aleph, and then Beth, and then Gimel, then Daleth. There would be a, a, a recounting of the Hebrew, all 26 letters, so 26 stanzas, of eight verses each. Um, the Songs of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 135, those are the marching songs. You know the songs you sing in the car when you're on vacation? Okay. Well, those songs were all written for the Hebrew people to go to sing as they traveled to and from Jerusalem for the feasts that were required uh, to attend. So they were kind of like the songs the kids sing in the back of the station wagon on the way to Jerusalem. And that's why Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Well, as you approach Jerusalem, it's surrounded by mountains. So as you're in your last leg of the journey, you lift up your eyes to the hills and you ask the question, where does my help come? And so all the Psalms have stories that if we know the story, we are allowed to put ourselves in the story. If we don't know the story, I think that's when we're allowed a little sanctified imagination. There are five divisions, five books within the book. And those are also identified in your Bible. If you look at uh, over the heading over Psalm 1, you'll see Book 1. Uh, and those are uh, identified in the handout that Gary made for us. Um, I'll explain why the handout says Book 1 starts in chapter, in chapter 3 in just a moment. But Book 1 would be Psalms 1 through 41. Book 2... 
42 through 72, book 3, 73 through 89, book 4, 90 through 106, and then book 5 is 107 through 145. And within book 5, you see the divisions of Psalm 146 um, through 140, 150. Those are uh, Hallel songs because they have the words praise, which is Hallel, lay to Yah, God. Hallelujah. Oh. Uh, because Yah was the shortened form of Yahweh. And so Hallel is praise to Hallelujah. And so these are the songs of praise uh, tucked away at the very end. Um, there are also one um, 13 through 118. That section is called the Hallelujah. And so the Hallelujah Psalms are the last five, and the group of Psalms that's within that is called the Hallel. And that is a whole group of Psalms that lead up to the Hallelujah Psalms. And that is right before the Psalms of Ascent that we talked about a minute ago. And then between the Hallel and the Psalms of Ascent, is Psalm 119, which is the celebration of God's word. That's the long acrostic psalm. So the the structure of the psalms, um, I, I really regret that I don't have as much time on Sunday to go through all this because I learn a lot more about the psalms when I understand what an intricate arrangement uh, the editor has done in order to help us understand them better. Uh, I get it um, when we say that that um, Psalm uh, 1 and 2 are introductory psalms. And then book 1, book 2, book 3, book 4, book 5. Um, I, 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 I get that. that. That makes more sense to me. Now, the reason that the person who did the graphic didn't include Psalm 1 and 2 in the book 1, they're almost introductory to the entire collection. That if you, if you think about what happens in Psalm 1 and 2, you get pretty much an overview of what happens in all of the Psalms. Within the collection of Psalms and what we're trying to uh, kind of focus on in our uh, study are the wisdom psalms. So there are psalms of lament, psalms of um, praise. There are actually songs of anger. Anybody know for uh, Gary will give them a magic uh Duck, if they can, if you can tell me what those psalms are called. I'm mad at you, God. <laughs> you said it before. The imprecatory <laughs> psalms. And they're not, I'm mad at God. They're, I'm mad at somebody else, and I want God to smite oh, them. Right. Right. So, so, okay, God, 
uh, this this person did me wrong. Bring the rain. <laughs> and and I love that the Psalms are so honest that you if you look online and and key in imprecatory Psalms. And by the time you get I-M-P-R-E, it's probably going to finish it for you. But imprecatory psalms, there are, these are psalms, and I, nobody ever preaches the imprecatory psalms because it just sounds mean. But uh, they are basically, God, this person did me wrong. Would you please curse them, their wife, their children, their land, uh, their future? Would you, would you please just make it rain? And uh, or make it not rain, but so uh, does that mean does that mean it's okay for me to do that? Um, Emily, I will confess that I've occasionally read an imprecatory psalm as a prayer. Um, if it's in the Bible, I feel like I'm allowed to read it. <laughs> but uh, it, you know, it's it's so honest and so raw. That's that's where these psalms come in. And when we get to the Proverbs in a, a next week, and, and we understand that the Proverbs are largely a father trying to say to his son, it's, it's urgent that you get this. It's urgent that you hear this. We get almost permission in all the wisdom books. Certainly we heard it with Job and suffering. We almost get permission to be real, to be authentic. And if anything, what I hope happens is that the Psalms will challenge us not to pray children's prayers as adults. That we don't, now I lay me down to sleep, and we don't just go into our sing-song prayer voice. I don't know who we're talking to when we do that, but the Psalms don't let us do that because they're so raw and so real that if we really dive into the Psalms, we get wonder, we get sadness, we get anger, we get sorrow, we get praise, we get instruction. And so the wisdom Psalms within the Psalms, which is a wisdom book, the wisdom Psalms are those which teach us about instruction. I only have 25 minutes left. And so what I'd like to do with the time I have left is to say, let's look at a wisdom psalm and then let's look at one psalm each. This is what I'm going to do Sunday as well. One psalm each that sort of fall into the acrostic that we've all learned at one time or other as to how to pray. If I don't know how I'm supposed to pray, A, for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, S for supplication, spells the word acts. And so like the rosary does for Catholics, when you find somebody like me who's attention challenged and I need to stay focused in prayer, sometimes I need a train track to run on. And uh, the acrostic acts, A-C-T-S, has been a helpful acrostic for me all these years. And so I've found a song of adoration, a song of confession, a song of thanksgiving, and a song of prayer, uh, supplication. And then I threw in a song of wisdom because we are studying the wisdom literature. So 
All I could do is a high-level view. I'll try to do a little more with it on Sunday, but I'm without looking the best I can, I'm going to tell you about my psalms. The wisdom psalm is Psalm 1. It doesn't really fit into the books. It's an overview of all of it. And so Psalm 1 starts with what Psalms is all about. How blessed is the man. How blessed is the man. And then the instruction part of it kicks in. And you see that the psalmist says, the, the, the man is wise who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. And I've taught this psalm before, but the wisdom is that there is a progression there. If you're walking by, don't stop. If you stop, you end up standing. If you end up standing, you end up sitting. And if you are blessed, if you do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, what is it you're supposed to do? Keep on walking. And what do you do when you keep on walking? You meditate on the word. And so the first psalm, the wisdom psalm, pretty much captures the whole book. Don't walk where sinners go, don't stand, and certainly don't sit down and get comfortable. Instead, keep on walking, walk out, walk in the light, walk in the word. So all of Psalms is about praise, blessed is the man. It's about wisdom, doesn't uh, walk stand or sit it's about the word of god he delights in the law of the lord and then it gives some um, uh, other background there let's talk about a psalm of adoration turn to psalm 8 psalm 8 one of my favorite psalms of all time because this really doesn't tell us um, when this psalm was written or why this psalm was written. And so I let my sanctified imagination kick in. I've been to Israel going back this year. We're going back in May. And while we're there, we will see a first century sheep fold. And basically there is a solid wall, a cliff, and the shepherds have built stone walls out from that cliff. So the back wall of the fold is the cliff. And then they build stone walls that enclose a fold. The folds are not owned by anyone, any shepherd that happens to be in that field, because the sheep know his voice. He says, sheep, come on in here. And the folds are uh, sort of uh, multiple enclosures within a single fold. And each shepherd has an enclosure for his sheep. And then when he gets all the sheep on the right side of the wall, he lays across the open. 
because they won't walk over him. I can imagine there was no electricity, no light clutter back then. I can imagine that when David was laying down on his back, sheep are safely in the fold, he's looking at the night sky in Israel. And I don't know if you've seen any pictures, images from the new telescope that's gone online, but stunning when you don't have light clutter to see what God arrays in the stars. And so I can imagine David saying, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of the foes. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set into place, who am I? What, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of his hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. <coughs> oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I, my sanctified imagination kicks in, and that's my signature psalm for adoration. And anytime I am blessed enough to be on the road somewhere at night and I'm between cities, I will almost always pull over to the side of the road, lay on the hood of my car and quote Psalm 8. It's adoration. It's just pure, pure adoration. Anybody want to guess where I'm going for confession? Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a little different because it is one where we are given the situation. <clears throat> we are told uh, what was happening then. And uh, the, the, the subscription there, the inscription, says that uh, the psalm and to the choir master usually indicates the tune. Uh, when it says to somebody or other, uh, that's that's a lot of times the tune that it was sung to. But he gives us the author, David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So the story, of course, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, where David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. And it is, it is just almost anybody who writes in their Bible, this is just so underlined and highlighted because it becomes all of our Psalms of confession. And the thing that you have here is such authenticity, such humility. He says, have mercy, O God, according to your steadfast love, not according to anything that I've done, according to your love, according to your mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, God, I have sinned. I, I have sinned. And, and he says, I know my transgressions. Verse four, against you only have I sinned. 
In my Bible, I wrote the words, of course not. <laughs> he sinned against Bathsheba. I, I don't want to use the word sexual abuse, but it certainly was an abuse of his power. He summoned her to sleep with. Certainly she was hurt. He sinned against her. He sinned against the child. He sinned against his people. He sinned against his other wives. He sinned against her husband. But David was so overwhelmed and so terrified at the thought that his relationship with God would be severed that he spoke that in poetry. I don't think anybody would pretend that the sins against everybody else were insignificant. But David was so <clears throat> troubled that God would turn away from him. That God would, would, um, would say, I've had enough. That he wrote this. And so uh, against you alone, he said, um, you are justified in your words. You are blameless in your judgment. I was brought forth in iniquity, original sin. Uh, but you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The, the purpose of confession is to come clean. You know, what? I, I've said this before, but the word confess does not mean reveal. It means agree. We don't reveal our sins to God when we confess. We agree with him. He already knows. He's God. So we agree like a child who says to a parent, I did this. The parent knows they did this. The child knows the parent knows they did this. They're just getting on the same page. And that's what confession does. That's why we need to continue to do this. I, I think I've said in here, Bill Bright called it spiritual breathing. We breathe out our sins. We breathe in con, uh, forgiveness through confession. And so we, we see a, a beautiful sense that David desperately wants to be clean. He says, create in me a clean heart, verse 10. Renew a right spirit in me. Here it is. Cast me not away from your presence. God, I... Take, go ahead. And take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Which right. is, scares the daylights out of me. <laughs> I'll, I'll run from Saul. I'll hide in a cave. I'll have my own son trying to take my life and my kingdom, but God, I can't do without you. I don't know if it's true, but somebody said you can live 40 days without food, eight days without water, eight minutes without air, and no seconds without hope. And I think that's where David was. He said, I, I can, all the other stuff, I, I brought it on myself, brought on by my enemies, but God, I can't, I can't do without you. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Nelson, you, you want to, I, I, this is kind of between you and me. We have the same fascination for this. Do you know why I think he wrote that? <clears throat> God took his spirit away from Saul and David knew that. And he saw the downfall of King Saul, and he saw that 
that God regretted that he made Saul king over Israel, that he took his kingdom away from him. And David, I think in a human sense, probably feared that, but even more, he, he feared how at the end of his life, Saul was consulting witches instead of God, and David had a, a map of the future, and he says, I, I couldn't stand that. I couldn't, I couldn't bear to be without God. So he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and then I will teach others. It's one of the most beautiful psalms of confession uh, that there is. Okay, quickly, a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, turn over to 138. And also 150. <coughs> I'm sorry, 100. Psalm 138 and Psalm 100. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. We don't thank enough because most of the time when we're praying, we get adoration, right? We, we, we are overcome with our privilege of prayer. And most of the time we get confession. But it's sort of the same way of, if I'm gonna ask my dad for money, I better admit some stuff I did. And, and then we get to Thanksgiving, and before we ask anything, we spend some time in gratitude for what we recognize that he's already done. And so he says, I give you thanks with my whole heart. I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. There it is again. And then he says, on the day I called you, you answered my strength of soul, you increased. So his gratitude is not unfocused. There is an object of his gratitude. And in a similar fashion, the writer of Psalm 100, he said, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing, Verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. He, he says, as you come into the house of the Lord, you are overcome with all the things that he's done and you can't help but, but worship. He says, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever with faithfulness to all generations. So, Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Has anybody ever used the word supplication? Anybody ever? Is that part of your vocabulary? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know anybody who, who talks like that. Um, but it's a word that's used often in Scripture. And when I was 
helping people with youth ministry, supplication sort of pointed to asking for stuff. And so if teenagers couldn't say or spell or pronounce the word supplication, we just let them say stuff. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, stuff. It does, but I, I learned something new as I looked at the Psalms. Psalm uh, 130, no, Psalm 86 is kind of the signature verse. Psalm 86, that's the one people go to most often to talk about supplication because it uses the word. Uh, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Okay, so far so good. I admit my need. I admit I can't do it on my own. I can't solve my own problems. I am poor. I am needy. I am dependent on you, God. Preserve my life. For I am godly. Okay. A little full of ourselves, but I get it. Uh, I, a, a better way to look at that, I am God word. I have, I have focused my attention on you, godly. I am, I am, I, I, that's, that's where I'm going to look for my help. He says, Savior servant who trusts in you, you are my God. I can't fix it. For you, O Lord, be gracious to me, uh, verse 3, for to you I cry all the day. I found that fascinating because I had to have a little confession time. There's a lot of stuff I bring to the, to the Lord. Most of you, you pray and you, you bring a, a need to the Lord. And if you have to wait too long, you go, well, I guess he's busy. I better figure out a way to solve it myself. We do it, right? To, to wait on the Lord for a response. He says, I cry to you all day long. The times that I've fasted over uh, an, uh, an answer or a, or a dilemma or a decision, and I've thought about the same thing all day long. Just, I get this, crying out to God all day long. But what we celebrate is his persistence. What I celebrate is that King David, who had all the resources at hand, did not say, okay, God, I guess you're going to leave me on my own for this one. I guess I'll figure something out. He didn't try to solve it. He stayed with it. Show us. Will you not revive us again? Uh, uh, gladden the soul of your servant. You, O oh Lord, do I lift up my soul. You, Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. Give ear to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you. So I had a little bit of a road bump with the idea of supplication here. Because when I allow myself to use the word stuff, 
I might ask God to give me stuff, but I don't really, I don't really anguish over it like David does here. And the thing that's missing from this particular psalm is that he doesn't ask something for anybody else. He's entirely focused on his need. So look back at Psalm 36. Psalm 36. And look at verse 10. The Psalms do teach us how to pray for others. O Lord, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright heart. Now, full disclosure, the idea of supplication for others is uh, dramatically grown in the New Testament. When, when James 5 says, uh, confess to one another, pray to one another, Pray for healing for one another. So the, the Psalms teach us how to pray, and all the nuggets are there. But some of the concepts are exploded a little bit more, expounded a little bit more in the New Testament. And so the Psalm, the, the book of wisdom within the books of wisdom, the book of wisdom and lament and instruction and praise and confession and adoration. That, that, that collection of psalms, remember one of the things they wanted to do was to give us words when we have no words. And so what I'm going to do as we close is to challenge you, like I'll challenge the church on Sunday, I'll just give you a head start. Find a psalm of adoration and read it as your prayer. Read Psalm 1 as your prayer asking God for wisdom. Find a psalm of confession or use Psalm 51 and, and allow that to be your prayer of confession. Just, just read the words but put yourself in the, the pen of the author. Find a, a prayer of thanksgiving in the Psalms and let that be your prayer of thanksgiving. Maybe it's Psalm 100. Find a prayer of supplication where you, instead of looking at it as the selfishness of just asking God to bless me, take David's point of view and say, I, I can't do this without you. I can't, I can't live a day without you unless you give it to me, unless you solve it for me, unless you give me the words, unless you give me the, the friends, the speech, the job. The, God, if you don't do it, we pray all the time around here to see something that is so big that nobody can give it a human explanation. Project Main Street was that for me. It was so big that if God didn't do it, it wasn't going to get done. And time and time again, 
we saw his holy fingerprint in ways that could only be God. And in, in my life, I, I, I know there are times when I've had the courage to do something or been prevented from doing something where I was able to say that had to be God because I would have charged off the cliff or I would have done something foolish. Only God. And, and that's what we're supposed to get out of the Psalms. That's the wisdom of Alan, yeah. supplication, you know, uh, I don't know what, when you, the, the first one you read about crying out somewhere mm -hmm. in some commentary about Philippians four, you know, uh, yeah. six, you know, it's, it's, you can say a prayer, but if you're desperate and crying out, or this is something like that, that, that said was supplication. How many of your moms, you know, you can tell the difference in your baby's cry, whether it's a, I'm mad, I'm throwing a tantrum, but when you hear that cry that said, I'm desperate or I'm hurt, you have a different attention span. You have a whole different way of listening to that and I, I think that's what we're getting at with supplication is that when we are ready to have our cry in prayer be that of a baby who is terrified without mother hurt without mother afraid without mother needing something that only mother can give when we have that sense of desperation we understand supplication all right i will see you guys on sunday